right, good morning. Hope you're enjoying this fall weather. We um, are at week number 10 of living as a church or life in the body, which is focusing on how we can encourage one another and uh, fulfill our responsibility to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we are commanded to do in Ephesians. And so um, we're going to look at how we can be an encouragement to each other today. And so let's uh, have a word of prayer and ask God for help as we do this. Father, we acknowledge that it is You who gives us uh, illumination. It is Your Spirit. He changes our mind. He, He refines our thinking. He removes the hostility that we naturally have towards Scripture. And He helps us to understand the significance of what it means for us. And so today we pray for Your grace and Your illumination as You uh, help us to understand properly the truth of Scripture with regard to how we uh, conduct ourselves within this body of believers. We pray that You would help us to know how we can better encourage one another and strengthen each other in our faith. And we pray that the result would be that our church would grow up into all aspects into Him who is our head, even Jesus Christ, so that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. We pray it in His name. Amen. Turn to Colossians chapter 1 with me this morning. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says something pretty remarkable here in verses 28 and 29. And um, and I think we need to, to get a sense of what he's trying to do for the believers here at the church in Colossae uh, so that we can understand properly what we should be doing here at the church in Royal Oak. All right, Colossians chapter 1. Would someone read verses 28 and 29 for us? All right, so did you catch that? What was Paul's objective here? What is Paul trying to do for each member? Okay, it's in verse 28. Okay, look at the end of the verse. Present every man complete or perfect in Christ. Paul's goal is to and, and what you're, you're talking about here, the warning or teaching, that's the way that he gets to that goal. But, but his goal is to, com- to present every person, every believer as complete in Christ. Now, it wasn't an easy task. Admonishing and teaching was something that Paul could only do because of the power of the risen Savior that was at work within him and work at work within them. But we are called to do the same thing. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, and this passage has been coming up over and over again in this class, and that's because if we're going to think about life in the body, then we need to think about this passage properly. And I think several times I've just alluded to it, but I think it's good for us to just feast our eyes on it and uh, make sure that we understand what it's saying here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. 
Would someone read verses 23 through 25? Alright, so we have some common themes in this passage as well. Paul's point, I want to make everybody complete in Christ. I want to see them reach a place of of completion. And I'm going to do that by warning them, admonishing them. Here, we each as believers ought to be confessing our hope without wavering, knowing that God's promise is faithful. And the way that we do that, verse 24, is we stimulate one another to love and good works. You know, the fact that we do love and good works, the fact that you do love and good works, that I do love and good works, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen on an island. It happens when we are stimulating one another to do that. Turn in the back of your hymn books to the church covenant. It's on the very back panel of your hymn book. And I'll show you here that we've also agreed to do this together with each other as a church. Church covenant is simply a, a way that we understand how we're going to live or we agree to say this is how we're going to live. So our statement of faith says this is how we believe and our church covenant says this is how we're going to live. Look at the fourth paragraph. It says this, We further engage to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress to cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech, to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation and mindful of the rules of our Savior to secure it without delay. You get a sense of the weight of our responsibility to one another? We don't come to, to get all of our needs met, to make sure that we feel good at the end of the day. We come partially because of this, so that we can help other people uh, and we can help carry their loads. We're, we're accountable to each other. And the reason that we say something like this, by the way, this was written, anybody, anybody have any idea when this was written, this church covenant? 1939, Greg. Bonus points right there. That's when our church started. The very first two, two things that our church did when when they came together, uh, was to put together a statement of faith, what we believe, and then put together this church covenant. And we still hold to both of those things. And um, I think I think um, the reason for that is because we recognize that there is a life and death struggle going on in this world uh, against this world and this flesh and and the devil. And our goal together is to cross the finish line so that we can present every single person complete in Christ. And part of that is doing what we talked about last week, which was what? More bonus points I'm giving out today. What did we talk about last week? Confronting sin, right? Confronting sin. We talked about... Um, the fact that we need to be watching out for each other's souls, making sure that that uh, that that any sin, unrepentant sin, is is not going unchecked. 
And so in this passage, we're thinking about it more of in a positive way rather than, okay, let's see if there's any sin in people's lives and then if, if it's a problem, then, then we'll deal with it. This more is positive. Let's say, how can we encourage them? Okay, how can we lead them to the next level of, of glory? And um, so this happens within relationships. This happens as we are watching out for each other's souls, as we are, as we said in the church covenant, as we are praying for one another as we're encouraging one another. And um, there are just thousands of decisions that we each make every day. And uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be involved in everybody else's decisions, but recognize that, that people are making decisions that sometimes not on the basis of wisdom. And so we need to, um, to help encourage them when it comes to matters of righteousness and then also when it comes to matters of just simply wisdom. Now, let me just be clear and tell you that our goal here is not to become busybodies. What do I mean by that uh, phrase there, busybodies, or that word? Okay, gossipers, meddlers, Bill? Okay, getting other people's business when you don't really have a, a deep relationship with that person. Hey, that's not what the Scriptures are calling for. In fact, they call for us not to do that. Paul says some of you have quit your jobs and you've spent all of your time just um, in, interacting with other people, getting involved in their business when you shouldn't be. You should be busy doing your work and minding your own business. Instead, you're busy bodies. And um, that's a problem. Uh, we saw that in Second Thessalonians a couple of weeks ago in the evening service. So that's not what we're calling for here. But where we do have a relationship and where we do have an opportunity to interact and influence that person, we ought not to sit by idly when they're making foolish decisions, when they're moving towards matters of sin. And so our goal this morning is to consider how we can build a church community where we are constantly motivating each other to live lives that matter. So let me just give you a brief outline of what we're going to do, and then um, we'll get started into... Are uh, the main content of this morning. First, we'll start by what, what makes this responsibility difficult, and then we'll examine the type of relationships that are required to make this happen, and then finally some practical uh, guidance for how we can speak powerfully uh, gospel-drenched teaching into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Any questions or comments so far? Okay, so what makes this so difficult? Our enemies and godliness. We as a church are called to encourage one another. We are uh, called to live lives that are fruitful and, and productive for the kingdom of God. But we have to have our eyes open for what we're up against. So first, we need to recognize that our struggle is one of the heart. Our struggle is one of the heart. Um, you know, sometimes we can think that, you know, if we just get alone, if I can just get away from all these people, then I won't have all these problems. But what we don't recognize when we make statements like that or when we think thoughts like that is that the biggest struggle that we have in our Christian life lives within us. 
it's our own heart, our own flesh that is warring against the spirit that lives in us as well. And uh, so we read in Jeremiah 17:9, familiar verse there, the heart is deceitfully wicked and, and uh, above all things, who can know it? And um, James says that the, the reason that we have wars and conflicts with one another, that we have arguments and, and we're so frustrated, is because we have a conflict within ourselves. Where do the wars start? It actually comes from within, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. So, um, what we need to recognize is that the struggles that people have in our church, the struggles that we have, in our own lives, they start in the heart. They're, they're a matter of the heart. And, and so this is important because we need to, to help point people to that very truth. Um, so often when we're in relationships with other Christians and we see things in their lives that are dishonoring to Christ, our goal is to get them to behave in the right way. Right? Stop behaving that way. Start behaving this way. But that shouldn't be the goal because actually we could we can have we can turn people into external conformists. What do I mean by that? Okay, on the outside looks great. But inside they could be full of dead men's bones. So the goal is to see their heart changed. Not the behavior primarily. That will change as we see their heart change. So we want to, to see that happen. Um it's not. It's not about their circumstances. Um, it's not about external pressures necessarily. Um, sometimes people put themselves into situations where they shouldn't be. But, but the main problem is one of the heart. And so, a few implications about this: um, we're seeking for heart change, not behavioral change. So, number one, only God can change the heart. And so, let's depend on God. Let's pray. Pray hard that God would would change their heart. You know, sometimes we just kind of overlook this and just, I need to focus on uh, on doing, doing, doing. If I can just get into their lives and help them more, just make decisions for them in some cases and lead them in the right way. Well, you know, actually it comes down to whether God is willing to change their heart. And so let's pray to that end. That without God, we, without Christ, we can do nothing. If the Lord, um, if the Lord doesn't build the house, then we labor in vain when we build it, unless He does. Psalm one twenty seven one. All right, so so God's the one that has to change the heart. Number two, don't take confidence in externals only. Don't take confidence in externals only. You know, we could evaluate people based on all sorts of different measures. Okay, let's see how long their quiet time is. Has the, has the length of their quiet time changed? The types of books that they're reading? Um, the number of people that they're discipling or evangelism, uh, evangelizing? You know, and so if those are our measures that we're looking for, then what we've actually subtly become is more of a legalistic church. That you have to meet these certain standards in order to be right before God. Now, certainly, externals are a great way of showing real fruit. So, we don't want to dismiss those things. 
But if that's what our, where all of our focus is on, then we've missed the point. Uh, the main thing that we ought to be focused on is is repentance of the heart. Again, back to the internals. We want to see genuine repentance. Now, hopefully that will... Not hopefully. It will result in the fruit of change. But if we're just seeking for the change, then we've missed the point. Alright, so don't judge it. Judge them based on externals alone. Number three, act in humility. Act in humility. Have you ever heard the phrase... Except for the grace of God, there go I. I'm not sure where that quotation comes from. Probably some uh, missionary. Alex, any idea? Okay. Well, well, I should have looked that up before I came, but I put Alex on the spot. Welcome, Alex. Good to have you back. Um, it's no accident that that immediately after Paul exhorts us to restore those who are caught in sin in Galatians six one, he says. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. That he warns us against our own pride and self-reliance. You know, that that we need to come with an attitude of humility. What we tend to do is when we see other people's sins, and we see how they're, they're struggling, we think, wow, that could never happen to me. That could never happen to me. But that's why that phrase comes into play, except for the grace of God, there go I. And when we see it in that way, it starts to change the way that we think about that person. Now, instead of coming down in an overly judgmental way, we say, you know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, that would be me, and how would I want to be treated in that situation? I would want to be treated with love and and with um, genuine concern. And so, I need to watch out for my own heart, that my heart could be just as black or blacker than their heart is but I might just be better at hiding it than they are. Or, God hasn't brought my sin to the surface as He has for them. Is that possible? That our hearts could be blacker than someone else in the church? Absolutely. And so, we need to act in humility, recognize that God opposes the proud, the people who... Uh, look down on that person who's who's caught in sin. You know, it's the doctor who um, who recognizes that he's only you know one accident away from being in the bed. You know, next to the the patient that he's working with. Those are the type of doctors that we love to have because he recognizes that. You know what? I I could get cancer just like you. I could get diabetes. I could break my arm or leg. You know, he doesn't come up to you and say, you fool, right? How could you break your leg? I mean, how could you get cancer? Oh, he comes by and he's he's concerned for you and he cares for you. And he recognizes that he could very well be in that same position. And that's the way we need to treat other believers. You know, it's so easy to come down on other people and just say, how, how foolish is that? That's very proud of us. To do it that way, and so we need to act in humility. And then, lastly, our goal is not personal fulfillment. The importance of the heart reminds us that our goal is not to feel happy. We don't want them. The, the final goal for them to be happy and to be fulfilled, because don't you know a lot of people in this world who are happy and fulfilled, but are far from God? I do. 
There are many ways to achieve happiness and fulfillment, but tragically they never get to the heart issue. And so our goal is that they would be transformed in their desires to seek Christ above all else. That they would be, remember what Paul's goal was for them, what was it? That he would present every man as what? Complete, perfect in Christ. Okay, so that's our goal. We don't want them to be happy in something. You know, they're really distressed right now. I'd like to see them happy or fulfilled. No, we want to see them complete in Christ. Mark. Okay, so man who is about to be burned at the stake, John Bradford, 1555, says, except for the grace of God, there go I. Bonus points for Mark. See? Um, amazing that you just pulled that off the top of your head. What's that? Yeah. Yes. So the first enemy we face as we struggle to watch over our brothers and sisters is the deceitfulness of our own heart. We need to recognize that that they could be deceived about their situation and we could be deceived about our own situation. So guard ourselves as well. All right. The second thing is the danger of hollow and deceptive philosophies. Um, You're in Hebrews. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Would someone read chapter 2, verse 8? Okay. So, to use the terminology that Paul's using, he's essentially saying that we are all philosophers in one way or another. That is, we come up with our ideas of how things work uh, based on what we hear, what we think about. We are all creating philosophies about the meaning of life, aren't we? What is it that matters? Why do things happen? What, what is really worthwhile in life? And those, though we usually know the right answers, we would be deceived to, to think that we are immune from the hollow and empty philosophies of the world. And so we need to guard against that. We need to guard other people, uh, guard other people from that as well. Um, you know, we might foolishly think that we're immune to this message that the world is blaring out day after day. I've often said if you're not filling your mind with the Scripture, then you are automatically being filled with the things of this world. Because it, it, it happens... A lot of times without us consciously thinking about it. Not not by some osmosis, but we're not consciously thinking, you know what, I'm being taken away by the philosophies of the world right now. Just because we, we live in the world and our minds just constantly are picking up things and and causing us to form various ideas. And so um, our guiding philosophy has to rest on the truth of the Gospel. And we have to be careful against these hollow and empty philosophies that that are set up and that are constantly bombarding us from the world and you know back to that idea of fulfillment you know just just as a just as an illustration 
Remember Abraham Maslow, who had the hierarchy of needs? He said, you just need to meet these certain levels of needs. This was in your psychology class. Some of you, it was a long time ago. But the ultimate goal for him was actually fulfillment. It was what he called self-actualization. And if we can just reach that state of self-actualization, then we will be satisfied. We will be fulfilled. And so we, we know lots of people who are, are living that way. And sometimes we are pulled in that direction likewise. Like if I can just be fulfilled in life and all the things you know, that God has given to us, the church and the Bible and all these Christians and things, those are all done so that I could be fulfilled. But that's not really the goal. Is to meet, to use the means to get to that end, my own personal fulfillment. But it is to, to, to have a a Christ fulfillment, if I can put it that way, that that we would be complete in Christ. And so we we have to guard against these desires of our hearts that that um that pull us away to the philosophies of this world. All right. Any questions? That's why it's difficult for us to um to do, to be involved in this process but it's it's vital. All right, any any questions or comments on that? Next the context for change. The context for change. Most of the rest of the time we're going to spend specifically on how we can do that, but first I want to say a few things about uh the context of relations, how how we can allow these to happen. There are two relationships that we need to watch out for. Um, that is, people who are hiding their struggles and then people not helping when those struggles appear. Nothing I say in this class is going to be any personal benefit to you if you're not willing to to um, allow other people to watch out for your lives. If you're not willing to reveal some of your struggles to people who are close to you. I'm not saying to get up and give a testimony of all the deepest sins that you are committing. Okay, this is not, you know, a church that's built around confession time. Okay, but we ought to have relationships that are close enough where people can look in and see what kind of struggles we have so that they can be praying for us more specifically and so that they can be uh, encouraging us and, and guiding us when we start to go off path, path and that they can do the same for uh, and, and that we can do the same for them. And so two questions would be good to ask yourself. Are you helping to make this church a welcoming place towards struggling people? Are you are you helping this church to, to be a welcoming place to those who are struggling? Or is, this, is it difficult for people to come here? Uh, and then second, do you make it a regular habit to share your struggles with others? at one level or another. Okay, obviously, you need to do this with some Christians casually, not not in the deepest levels of your sin. I'm not talking about that to every person. Some people, it's just going to be, you know, I, I'm struggling with with discouragement. You know, but for other people, it's, I'm struggling with discouragement because of my marriage or because of the way that my children are going right now. Or because of so so with the deeper relationships we get into deeper issues with them, not so that we can just dump all of our problems on them, but so that they can uh, help guide us because sometimes we are self-deceived. 
a few thoughts on helping create that type of culture. Um, the thing that will kill this sort of mindset, that is that this church is designed to help struggling people. Struggling people, we could say, struggling people helping struggling people. The thing that will kill that the most is putting on a facade as if we have no problems at all. Now, there's another extreme where people are just, you know, we really need to be transparent and we just need to tell everything. And you walk away going, whoa, you know. Uh, you know, I, I you could have just told me I had an infection. You didn't have to actually open up your arm here and show me the whole thing and show, show how to dress the wound. I didn't need to see that. Okay, so that's sometimes how we do it when we talk to people. So that's that's the other extreme. But but then the the extreme I think we tend to lean towards is the one where we just cover everything up. You know, we just got everything is covered up. We're not going to show any infections. You only see our best side, plastic front, plastic smile when we come in. No struggles. Okay? And and nothing will kill our responsibility to help struggling people than to try to cover up our own struggle. Um, Secondly, it is not caring for other people's struggles. It's not caring for other people's struggles. It is, um, and and even worse than that, is actually not caring and turning on that person in a condescending way. Back to the the unhelpful doctor, the the doctor with no bedside manners, right? So so we need to not only be willing to share some of our struggles with the people who are closest to us, but also we need to be willing to, to care for other people's struggles. You know, Galatians says, you know, bear one another's burdens. Bear their burdens. And then later on it says, carry your own load. So, Bear your own burdens, bear your own load, and then help carry theirs. Um, that's that's the goal. Um, sometimes we can just be so trite and unfeeling when people come to us with deep problems. You know, I'm really struggling with depression. I'm really de- depressed about what's going on in life. And our response sometimes can be, well, you just need to read your Bible more and spend more time outside and you'll be fine. I don't struggle with that, so you must be less spiritual than I am. Okay, and that that's actually not helpful. There, there's all sorts of advice we could talk about here, uh, you know, trying to just solve the problem. Sometimes it's just helpful to listen. You know, the I, I often I'm remind, am reminded of Job when his friends come by after all these struggles that he's going through. You know, the best thing that they could possibly do for him was the thing that they did at the beginning which was just sit there and say nothing and just listen. Then they opened their mouth and they started judging him and, and, and you know saying this is all a result of your sin. What did you do, Job? And, and sometimes for us, when people have struggles, the best thing that we can do for them is just listen. We don't have to solve the problem. Um, so... Don't pretend don't pretend to be something that you're not but but don't you know reveal it all either. 
be be careful, be guarded. You know, the wise person, Proverbs says, is one who who is a person of restraint. So this idea of being transparent, you know, in psychology, I think is unhelpful idea for Christians because, um, you know, it's wise to restrain yourself, restrain what's in your mind. We don't need to know everything that's in there. Uh, there's tactful ways to <clears throat> to talk about these things. All right. So this this involves us going deeper than the you know how are you today? Fine, thank you. It is you know I I, I just, I've been struggling a little bit, a little discouraged this week, but I'm thankful that God is faithful and I'm trusting in Him. Would you just pray for me this week? Um, it go, it goes a little deeper than than what we're used to. All right. How do we do this? Um, how do we help struggling people? If I and you are struggling with our own flesh, with our own heart, and we're struggling with the deceptive and empty philosophies are outside of us, then how do we encourage one another and um, how do we strengthen one another in our faith? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this is a great grid just to run through when when you're trying to help other people who are um, struggling with something. It's a great three-step grid. There, there's three conditions that a person might be in when they're struggling. And so, here they are. First Thessalonians 5. Would someone read verses 12 through 14? All right, so some responsibilities as a congregation, verses 12 and 13. And then with one another, that's 12 and 13 before their leaders. Verse 14, how we interact with one another. This is directed at the Thessalonian church, so we don't want to think, okay, this is for the paid professionals. This is for all of us. Verse 14, there's three things that we ought to do, and then one kind of overriding thing. That's at the end. Be patient with everyone. So let's look at these three things. And, and this is how we can encourage somebody. This is how, how we can handle someone's uh, uh, various struggles that they're, they're dealing with. Number one, admonish the unruly. Admonish the unruly. The word admonish there means to warn. To warn them. Someone who is disobedient, unruly, they're living in sin, you need to warn them about the dangers of sin. Okay, so you come across someone in our church who's struggling and you see that they're struggling with sin, you need to warn them. Perhaps they're deceived about it. Perhaps they're, um, perhaps they're, they're okay with it. So let's begin with a, an example. Um, Sally will not remove herself from the path of temptation. She's found that she's very tempted to be in love with the things of this world and watching a particular show on TV that seems to leave her discontent with her life uh, that God has, with the life that God has given her. But she really, really likes this show and has fun talking with her friends about it the next morning after she uh, sees it. 
And you've talked to her about this before. You know, this show is doesn't sound like a very edifying show for a Christian to be watching. And this actually may be destructive for your soul. And so she, she acknowledges it, that it can be destructive, and she confesses her sin, but her life doesn't change. She continues to watch it. She continues to to be discontent with her life in God. So what do you do? Well, I think in this case, it's not about encouraging someone who's discouraged. It's not about the third thing that we're going to look at, which is helping the weak. It's actually about someone who needs to repent, right? It's someone who's disobedient, who's actually living against the principles and commands of Scripture, and just needs to repent. And so you need to encourage her by challenging her about her sin and and calling her to repentance. Jesus said, you know, if if it's ca- if something is causing you to stumble, if one of your body parts is causing you to stumble, then what do you what should you do? Cut it off. I didn't mean literally cut off your hand or cut off your feet, but he meant to go to the most drastic measures that are necessary in order to get that sin out of your life because it would be better for you to do that and to enter eternity with God than to have all of your appendages in His example and enter hell. Be opposed to God. Okay, so admonish the unruly. Warn them about their sin. The second one is to encourage the faint-hearted. Okay, faint-hearted is just simply referring to those who are discouraged. So here's something really profound you probably could never figure out. If someone is discouraged, our responsibility is to do what? Encourage. It should not be uncommon for a person in our church to come in feeling discouraged about life and to leave after having interacted with believers and having the Word of God taught to them and preached that they should leave encouraged. It should not be uncommon for that to happen. And that only happens when there's a culture of people who care about other believers and are concerned about presenting every person complete in Christ. It happens when we understand our responsibility that we need to provoke one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10. So let's think of an example. Think of those who have given in to sin, who tried to walk the path of righteousness, but have failed so many times that they they just want to give up. You know, it's not that they're being obstinate. Now, we need to make sure that they're not being disobedient and unruly and that they're just like, I don't want to repent. But the people who, who just are are just so worn out from struggling against the sin that they just need to be encouraged. And one of the great things that we can do for each other is to encourage them with the Word of God. So, are there any texts of Scripture that would help somebody like this that just keeps failing and, and is just keeps on struggling? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.13 excuse me, says, No temptation has seized you, 
accept what is common to man. You know, you may think that in your struggle with sin that you're the only Christian that has ever dealt with this, but I want you to know from the text of Scripture that this temptation is, is common to man. And then tell them the next part as well, that God is faithful. Okay? You may think that God's not faithful to you because you keep struggling and failing and that He's given up on you. But God is faithful and He will, with each temptation, give you a way of escape. Okay? So you may think that there's no way out, that you have to give in to this sin. There's so many great truths in that one verse alone that would be an encouragement to someone who's just discouraged because they're struggling with sin. So remind them about Scripture and point them back to the glory of the Gospel and what Christ has saved them from and empowered them to do. Right? It's not that just Christ saved us from the slavery of sin, like no longer is sin our master. That's true. We're dead to sin in that way. But also, He made us alive to Christ, to righteousness. He's empowered us to do what is right. The reason that we can do what is right is because Christ is living in us through His Spirit. So, if someone's discouraged, we need to encourage them. And then finally, help the weak. Okay, so this is a great way just to to kind of evaluate someone quickly. Just run through these three things. If you memorize this verse, you would do yourself well if you want to help encourage someone else. Okay, is this person disobedient? Then I need to warn them. Is this person discouraged? I need to encourage them. And here's the third one. Is this person just weak? You know, do I need to help them? Well, who is weak? In a sense, we all are, but but there are some in our midst who are weak in ways that make them spiritually vulnerable. You know, those who are discouraged are those who have faith, but they're not exercising it. But those who are weak are those who are who don't really have the capacity to to express their faith through great difficulty. That is, that they just haven't been... Um, they, 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 they're immature spiritually. Okay, I'm not going to... I was going to say, do you know anybody like that? But then I was like, everybody's going to look at each other. So let's not do that. Um, is there someone that's weak? Maybe because of um, their spiritual condition. You know, maybe they're a newer Christian. And they just don't understand, you know, some of the basic things of the Christian life. Well, well, is there something that you can do to help them? Is there a way that you can point them to the Scriptures? Encourage them to be more faithful and to be under the sound of God's Word? Um, Maybe it's they're weak physically. You know, maybe it's because they're older or they're, they're infirmed in some way. Is there a way that you can help them? Come alongside them and say, you know what? Man, the the struggles in your life are are great. And just for various reasons, nothing that you necessarily brought on yourself, but you don't have to go and tell them they're weak, but just go up to them and and see what way you can help them. Maybe it's just simply sitting down with them and reading the Scriptures with them. Maybe it's praying for them specifically, finding out specific ways in which you can pray for them. Um, Might be providing physical help for them. You know, just bringing a meal by or mailing a, a letter or card, providing transportation. You know, some things that, you know, we may look at in the big scheme of things, these are kind of menial. They're not really that important, but actually they are. Within the body of Christ, we all need to be 
helping those who are weak because there will be times when we are weak, spiritually or physically. Alright, and then the overriding um, principle in all of these things is to not expect immediate change. Look at the end of verse 14. Be patient with everyone. So as you're kind of looking at and evaluating people based on where they're at and then helping them accordingly, either warning them or encouraging them or helping them, then be patient with them. It's going to take time. Okay, the sin didn't come into their life if they're dealing with sin. The sin didn't come into their life overnight and it's probably not going to leave overnight. Uh, the discouragement that they're facing right now probably didn't just happen because of one thing. It's probably been building up for a while and it may take a long time to get out of that discouragement. So, so we would do ourselves well as a church just be patient with everyone and recognize that change takes time. And the change that we're ultimately looking for is within their hearts. At the same time, we're humbly recognizing that we need change in our own heart. All right, let me leave you with, you, leave you with a quote and quotation and then um, I'll see if you have any questions or comments. This is from C.S. Lewis writing about the love of God. He says, An awful and surprising truth. It is an awful and surprising truth that we are the objects of God's love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, He is present. He's not a senile benevolence that, you know, drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, nor the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor is he the care of the host who feels responsible for the, com- the comfort of his guests. No, but our God, He is a consuming fire Himself, the love that made the worlds. He is pers- as persistent as the artist's love for his work. And he is as despotic as a man's love for a dog. He is provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the genders. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, grace beyond our desiring. This is the God of love that we serve and that we can help to show to other people when they need encouragement. You are in many ways the conduit of God's work in their lives. The conduit of God's grace. That, the, that, that is the way that God often provides comfort and strength and encouragement to believers is through people like you are willing to step out a little bit outside of your comfort zone where it feels really warm and fuzzy and no one's bothering me and I'm not dealing with other people. i got enough problems of my own. But when we're willing to step out, show them that God of love, then God actually will help to transform their lives. And the amazing thing that happens when we encourage other people, we somehow come away encouraged as well. Any questions or thoughts, comments? Bill. Which one was that? The first, second, or third? I... Okay, so comfort. The, the, then the last one is help the weak. 
is the way that the New American Standard translates it. So if it's a person who is spiritually weak, then they need to be helped in some way. Point them back towards the Scriptures. Help them to see the importance of following God. Or it could be somebody who's physically weak, and in that case, we just need to care for whatever needs they have. Like if a widow had some needs, then we would care for those. That's, I think that's the point. Is that what you're asking? Okay, so that's actually the second one. Sorry, I was thinking of the third one. The second one in the New American Standard is the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. So I just said that's the same as encouraging the discouraged. If someone's discouraged, our our responsibility is to encourage them. And that's kind of what Hebrews 10 is talking about, I think, that we provoke them to love and good works, help them to see God's love for them. Do you have a follow-up on that? Okay. All right, well, let's pray and and we'll be dismissed. Thank you for your attention. Lord, we are so thankful for the people that you have used in our lives over the years that we have been saved to to, uh, warn us when we have been disobedient and to encourage us when we've been discouraged and to have helped us when we are weak. And we want to do the same for others. And we know that we will never be exempt from needing those things from others and so we pray that you'd help us to be humble enough to recognize that um, that we need each other. And so we pray for your grace as we do this. We we need you. We we uh, are thankful for your love and how you show it to us through faithful people who love you. And we pray that you would just help us to do this more faithfully, so that we would present each person here complete in Christ. In His name, Amen.